This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. I mean, the famous club at 12th and Jackson was the Black and Tan, you know, and this is a place where you would find people of all races late at night gathering as equals, listening to great music. Hey, everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knute Berger. And today we're talking about Jackson Street Jazz, the thriving black music scene of 1920s Seattle, and one of its influential yet lesser known musicians and composers, Frank Waldron. If you haven't already seen the video, we suggest you stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. After World War I and the influenza pandemic, the jazz age of the 1920s flourished, thanks in part to new prohibition laws. In Seattle, the nightclub and speakeasy scene took off, spreading from Pioneer Square to Chinatown to the Central District. From it, a music scene sprouted. From jazz, blues to rock and roll, it nurtured generations of great music and musicians and left an extraordinary legacy. It was the amazing Jackson Street club scene. What kind of launched your journey for this one, for this episode of Mossback's Northwest to focus on Jackson Street jazz? You know, I'm not a jazz buff, hmm. but I've read about the Jackson Street scene, which lasted, you know, really from the 1920s to the 1960s in one form or another, it changed along the way. But it was a very strong music scene in the black community that that sort of punched above its weight. You know, mm-hmm. it had a lot of influence on a lot of... Uh, musicians that became famous. And it's interesting because Seattle didn't have a very large black population, certainly in the in the teens and 20s it did not. Mm-hmm. So why here and why was it such a, a big deal? And I got a bunch of, over time, inquiries from people or suggestions from people saying, hey, why don't you do the Jackson Street scene? People want to know more about it. They mm-hmm. hear little bits about it and they wanted to know more about it. So I thought, if we do that story, you know, is there something that we can bring to it that's a little new that that people haven't heard about before? So I was talking with Stephanie Johnson Tolliver, who's the head president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington. And, you know, I've consulted her on a number of things over time. And I, I asked her, I said, if we did something on the Jackson Street scene, is there an aspect of that that you feel hasn't really gotten its due And she said, yeah, Frank Waldron. And Mm. I was like, who? (laughs) You know, I'd never heard of Frank Waldron. I mean, he's been mentioned and written about in some of the books that have been written about that scene. And it's it's been well documented by historians, by writers. Paul DeBarros is the main author who's written sort of the definitive books on the scene. But other people have written about it as well. And Frank Waldron is interesting because... He was very long in in that scene, a part of it, rented a room in a in a house that was right on Jackson Street, kind of where Jackson and Boren come together. Hmm. He taught music classes. 
but he also was he was a, a musician. Uh, he played in bands of the era, the sort of 1920s dance bands and some of the early jazz groups and uh, played not only in Seattle, but they toured the region. Uh, one of them was called the Wang Doodle Orchestra. <laughs> he, there's a picture of him. There are very few pictures, but there's one of him mm. in the Wang Doodle Orchestra. And the Wang Doodle Orchestra, was that a... Was that a like mostly brass band? Yeah, or, no, or, I mean, they all, had all string the instruments. String I th- in fact, I think in that picture, uh, if I'm remembering it right, I think he's holding a mandolin. Um, oh, really? But he, yeah, he he was mainly uh, played um, horn, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the orchestra, you know, played popular tunes um, as well as some of the early early jazz, and they, they toured around. They were a group that played in sort of a variety of venues outside the Jackson Street scene. But he was also a music teacher, so he was teaching a lot of young musicians. And he was very, you know, very technical, really, you know, worked with people on their technique. He wanted people who took music seriously. So he his teaching career lasted, you know, for 20, 30 years, he had this span. But he also produced uh, or wrote, rather, um, a songbook. Uh, and he, he, he was a composer as well. So he composed a World War I tune that wasn't a jazz number, but it was a World War I tune, uh, you know, about, you know, kicking the Kaiser, hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. winning the war. And it, it came out fairly late in the war, so it wasn't like a big hit, but he wrote that. And so that was a, a number that, you know, was published and uh, other people could play it. But he published a songbook that uh, was basically a teaching tool. Hmm. And it, it contains jazz numbers and jazz technique in it. Hmm. And a musician named Greg Ruby found a copy of the songbook because it wasn't widely available and recorded this music. This is one of the interesting things about the Jackson Street jazz scene is there are virtually no recordings of the music that was played because there was there was no real recording facilities or whatever. So this is music that, you know, had a huge impact with local live audiences and influenced multi-generations of black musicians and white musicians. But from a musical standpoint, it was really a creature of the black community. This crossroads jazz historian Paul DeBarros has written was the epicenter of the scene that stretched from the late teens to the 1960s. In clubs, dance halls, Cabarets, gambling dens, and speakeasies, he has written, Seattle rocked with wine, women, whoopee, and jazz. Historian Quintard Taylor has written that venues like the Congo Club, the Rocking Chair, the 300 Club, quote, flouted law and custom by allowing gambling, after-hours drinking, and interracial mingling. They were the only places where well-to-do white businessmen and socialites met black and Asian laborers and maids as social equals. All-night clubs, dance floors, and the illicit establishments were the connective tissue of an expansive vice district with Jackson as its main artery. As Seattle urbanized and the population grew, including a black population leaving the Jim Crow South, the demand for entertainment boomed partly due to Washington's early prohibition law in 1916 
and later with an influx of workers during World War II. I love that, that there's this, this legacy of music that has had such a big impact on, you know, so many people, but, you know, some of the people we even know their names, like, for example, Ray Charles, right? I mean, he was involved in some capacity. Yeah, Ray, Ray Charles was a musician here. Quincy Jones mm-hmm. played here mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the latter period. I mean, you had vocalists like Ernestine Anderson, you had Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, for example. Um, And, you know, there's sort of this interesting question about, you know, how did jazz get to Seattle? Yeah. I'm not sure there's a completely definitive answer, but, I mean, there's there's an understanding of, of jazz coming out of New Orleans coming up the Mississippi River to Chicago, mm-hmm. some understanding of, of how jazz, you know, came to different communities. In Seattle, it's a little unclear, but probably came from San Francisco, mm. musicians in San Francisco. It probably, it, it's pretty certain that there were jazz performers who in the late teens and 20s performed here as part of perhaps vaudeville acts or whatever. And many of the musicians um, there was an influx of bands connected to the military in World War One, oh. And so there were uh, many musicians who played in these bands at Camp Lewis, and then they would play concerts in Tacoma, or they would be, you know, picked up in an, another group, and in their spare time they would be playing. So there were musicians, there was uh, musical influences that were coming through uh, via vaudeville. And of course, eventually, I mean, every major jazz act that you can think of, of the 30s and 40s, uh, you know, came through here. Count Basie and mm. Louis Armstrong. And, you know, yeah. the the people in Seattle were exposed to these musicians. So white audiences would go see these musicians at the downtown theaters or concert halls. Mm-hmm. Many of them also came to places in the central area, like Washington Hall, for example. Yeah. A lot of yeah. very well-known, you know, musicians played there. And in fact, the first actual known jazz concert took place there, but with a local, a local band. I think in about 1922, something like that. There was a, a there's a known documented jazz performance at Washington Hall. But the you know the music performance was somewhat segregated. Yeah. You know, uh, Seattle was a very segregated city. It had you know the redlining of neighborhoods. It had covenants that didn't allow people of color to live outside of certain neighborhoods. They were excluded from places mm-hmm. like Capitol Hill and uh, Mount Baker, and you know. Many neighborhoods around Seattle had these covenants at different times. And the jazz scene took root in, you know, if you if you sort of look at the history of the Vice District, Chinatown, and the Central District, the Jackson Street is the artery that runs, that connects all those things. And so during Prohibition, you had speakeasies. Where would the speakeasies be? Well, they'd be in the Vice District. They'd be in in the, the Chinatown area. They would be in, in the Central District. And these, <clears throat> this is where this scene developed of late-night entertainment, mm-hmm. 
Musicians visiting Seattle after hours would come to these clubs, famous musicians, and they would play until the wee hours. And this was the, the only place in Seattle where audiences could really mix. The race and class divisions <laughs> kind of fell away. And so in, in the speakeasies, in the jazz clubs, I mean, the famous club at 12th and Jackson was the Black and Tan, you know, and this is a place where you would find people of all races, late at night, gathering as equals, listening to great music. We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy-efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska Airlines is your go-to when it's time to go. Alaska has the most nonstop flights from the West Coast, serving more than 120 destinations across the U.S., Mexico, Canada, Costa Rica, and Belize. On top of an unbeatable onboard experience, Alaska has the most rewarding loyalty program in the sky. As a mileage plan member, you'll watch the perks fly in. And now, as part of the One World Alliance, you can earn and redeem Alaska miles to more than 1,000 destinations worldwide. Ready to go global? Visit alaskaair.com now to land a low fare and the best care in the air. The scene you paint here is just, it just really makes me want to be there. I mean, it just sounds like what a great time is sort of a joyful, for a moment, letting go of this kind of perhaps the horrific racism of the time. I don't know if it, you know, all goes away, but just this idea of coming together. And then apparently this really entrenched system of corruption that sort of allowed all of these illegal things to happen. So if we're thinking about 1920s, Jackson Street jazz scene broadly at that time alcohol was illegal and gambling yes and yeah. prostitution all of those things were yes. illegal yeah. yeah certainly yeah certainly during the prohibition years yeah. which you know started in here in uh, about 1916 and lasted until early 30s mm -hmm. so that was sort of the heyday of that alcohol being <laughs> prohibited. And uh, yes, ga gambling and prostitution. But, you know, this is all of this is part of the payoff system. All mm -hmm. of this is, you know, occasionally the police deciding to crack down 
That system is still in place. That system is still going on. The system to reform reform that system is still going on. Mm-hmm. City is still swinging back and forth between does it does it want to encourage vice or does it want to crack down on vice? Mm-hmm. And and certainly the clubs along that corridor are more vulnerable in the sense that people of color are more vulnerable to the police crackdowns, the police tolerance policy, the the extortion of money and that kind of thing. And there are multiple systems that overlay each other there too. I mean, there's organized crime in in different ethnic groups (laughs) that Uh also contribute to who controls who controls businesses, who who allows you to have a speakeasy and, you know, mm-hmm. who you pay money to and that kind of thing. Wow. So, you know, that just is is all part of the business. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it just sounds like capitalism is just the same system. Like, so, you know, the business is going to make a lot of money, but in order to operate, they have to pay all these people and then those people make money. And it sort of, yeah, it just strikes me that in some ways that system kind of relies upon the prohibition of alcohol, of all these things, so that everybody makes more money. <laughs> Do you know why Washington State, you know, started their prohibition early? Well, we Washington and Oregon, uh, you know, in states in the Northwest, we had a very strong sort of progressive political movement, hmm. and the progressive movement of the early 20th century were people who advocated for certain socially progressive ideas, you know, welfare taking care of women and children, poverty, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But a big part of it became increasingly, from the late 19th century on, became prohibition, mm. became the idea that, well, you know, we can do all these things to create a benevolent welfare state. We can bring social order. But one, it's really through the lens of the white middle class and upper class. Women get the vote, but... You know, white women are the ones that are really sort of setting these agendas. And prohibition, uh, you know, became part of that because the idea was if you're going to if you're if you're going to have this welfare state where you're going to take care of people, you have to eliminate the problems that are creating the needs of people who need care taken of them. And so uh, Washington passed a a limited but real, um, you know, prohibition law in 1916. So this is right in the heart of that progressive reform era. Women have gotten the vote. They're a big voting bloc. And there was also race involved. I mean, certainly when you get into the 1920s where the Ku Klux Klan is um, showing up in Seattle and Portland and cities Mm -hmm. like that, Prohibition was also seen as a way to control people of color. Hmm. People weren't saying, well, it's people drinking cocktails at the Rainier Club that's a problem. Although the Rainier Club did get busted during Prohibition. Basically, um, the sense was we have to control the immigrant population. We have to control uh, people of color. They they can't control themselves. Hmm. So not all progressives supported Prohibition. But enough did and saw it as a piece of other progressive legislation. But, you know, it didn't have to play out like it did. It didn't have to spawn a music scene in the way the way that it did. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the the real benefits yeah. of all that was a real creative flourishing. 
Do we know any more about Frank Waldron? I mean, you were encouraged to look into him in part because he wasn't as well-known, perhaps. Do we know anything more about his life? I mean, did he live in Seattle the whole his whole life? Or? Not his whole life, if I'm remembering correctly. I think he was from San Francisco. I think he, he was in the military here in that World War I period. So oh, I think he, he was one of those musicians who was playing in Tacoma and uh, whatnot. But then he ended up here and, and made his living as a teacher. And the thing is, it's interesting to think about is, you know, he's he's writing music, composing music and playing music in the sort of World War I, 1918, 1917 period. But he's he's also still teaching in the 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so he he had a long, very consistent you know, career. And one of his students famously was Quincy Jones. Mm. So you think about Quincy Jones. I mean, I I don't think of Quincy. I I think of Quincy Jones in relation to pretty contemporary music as as a performer, as a composer, as somebody who's, you know, really involved in Hollywood and and that whole thing. But he was a student of Frank Waldron's, uh, you know, going to his house and sitting in a room. And apparently Waldron at first didn't think much of his commitment to playing, you oh, know. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think he got kind of scolded. <laughs> you know, Quincy Jones is, you know, sort of a master of popular music. But with roots in this scene by a guy who was exacting mm. a musician's musician a composer, you know, and so I, I think that's one of the really interesting ways is that this scene that might seem like, oh, it's kind of a relic of the jazz age wasn't, you know, and it mm. it and it it provided opportunities for, you know, Jimi Hendrix and others to, you know, play as backup musicians to very skilled jazz people and hone their own skills and their own their own sense of identity. And then there's, of course, the legacy of the musicians themselves, the mm-hmm. the people who've talked about it, you know, who've who've been interviewed for their biographies or whatever, um, you know, talked about what the scene meant to them or what they did or who they encountered and that kind of thing. So there's mm-hmm. there's a good deal of that. And and then what, of course, what interested me in this was the fact that some of the music was that was composed mm-hmm. that related to this prominent teacher and musician has been recorded now. So we can't, you know, we can't go into the studio and hear what was being played in the day, Mm -hmm. but we can get it at at a step removed by hearing one composer's Mm -hmm. numbers and what what they say about the type of music this person was was composing. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's one way you can connect with it in a way that you can't connect when you're just reading mm-hmm. reading a book. But as far as I know, I've I've read in a number of places the sort of frustration that there wasn't more going on on the recording end mm-hmm. um, to really capture it. You know, people weren't... The technology didn't exist to, you know, take a tape recorder into some of these clubs at that time. And if you don't have record studios that are bringing people in and making recordings, you know, it's very ephemeral. The living tradition of music passed from one person to the next has influenced jazz and popular music. 
In later years, the club scene helped shape the talents of folks more famous than Frank Waldron, Ray Charles, Ernestine Anderson, Jimi Hendrix. The roots of Seattle's jazz age are deep, and through the generations continue to nourish the world. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.